All right, welcome. We are talking buyers and sellers, acquisitions, mergers. It's a lot more than what you would think. It depends on what side you're on. Everyone in business uh, ends up at this point at one point in time. It's a very interesting dynamic. It's just kind of a, a very weird interaction. Sound Smart Business, where your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp, cover business in the news and add their awesome legal twist. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast brought to you by Pasha Law PC, a law firm representing your business in California, Illinois, New York, and Texas. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp. All right, welcome. We are talking buyers and sellers, acquisitions, mergers. We are going once again, head to head, Matt and I, taking different perspectives. This time around, we're not flipping a coin. Matt and I discussed it prior, and I am taking the buyer's point of view. So that means I'll be taking the seller's point of view. Um, that would that would be weird if you also took the buyer's point of view, so that's good. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, one thing I've noticed, um, I, I think, you know, obviously, there's not a lot of positive results from the from the pandemic. But one thing I've noticed that has happened that's been a, a positive, there's been a lot of transactions between companies, um, you know, like you said, mergers and acquisitions, things of that nature. So we, we've seen a, we've seen quite an uptick of uh, representing buyers and sellers in those sort of transactions just because of the nature of it. I, I don't know necessarily the if they were more motivated or what the actual you know reasoning was, but there has, at least in my opinion, there's been an increase in in those sort of transactions. Oh, absolutely, if you if you look at the stats on M and A, kind of in general, it's it's a lot more than what you would think. You would think that because of uncertainty, because of this, because of inflation, things would actually slow down, um, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. So M and A attorneys are quite busy. Yeah. But uh, but here, so we're, we're talking buying or selling a business, right? If um, and look, we're we're general practitioners. We work with um, medium to small size businesses, but um, everyone in business uh, ends up at this point at one point in time. Sometimes in the beginning, because you're acquiring a business that you're starting, perhaps maybe entering a new career, or you are selling a business that you've maybe your baby that you've been with for 10, 20 years. Um, and also in between, right? You, 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 maybe you have rapid growth and you're ready to move on to the next phase of your life. And so, um, of course, buyers and sellers are coming at complete opposite perspectives. Uh, it is a interesting relationship because both sides want to get a deal done, but a deal done at a point that uh, both are happy. And so uh, even though these parties are trying to move a deal forward, there's still strategy involved, there's still negotiation involved, and depending upon multitude of factors, uh, we'll end up uh, changing the result. And whether, yeah, that's, hopefully it's a good deal for both parties. Yeah, that's, that's the, the interesting part from our perspective is 
and for I guess for any lawyer that's involved in this, it's you know, it, like you said, it depends on what side you're on, and you can you take a completely different stance, and you know, negotiation of the terms depending on whether you represent the buyer or the seller, which obviously makes sense, but it's just a very interesting dynamic because we've we've even had clients where we've represented them in one capacity as a buyer and then down the road in a different capacity as a seller. So it's just right. <laughs> for the same business, right? Yeah. So yeah, for the for the same business. So um, you know, it's just it's inter- interesting how all of that works out. Yeah. And so we're we're gonna go through it. Um I, I don't think we're gonna at least I'm not gonna focus too much on the legal terms because we're going to make some presumptions here. You're going to have counsel. We're going to start talking. We're going, to, we're going to hopefully talk about more practical aspects of when you have that conversation with your attorney, where your attorney may be coming from and pushing you a certain direction, uh, negotiating certain business terms that are pretty common um, from each perspective and how, and also give some insight on maybe even how attorneys look at this, right? Uh, there is a lot of uh, client management uh you know, which is kind of a <laughs> attorney term, a client management uh, when it comes to these transactions, because it's for the most part, your clients or most people aren't going through mergers and acquisitions multiple times per year, right? Most, it's a once in a lifetime event in some cases, right? Uh, and uh, unless you're, again, in private equity or something, something to that effect. So let's get right into it. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, no, it's... <laughs> You're completely right. It's most of the time it is, you know, kind of a, well, I'd say the most classic example is kind of the one-time sell-off, you know, from a business that's cultivated and they've reached the point where there's a lot of value in there and they can sell it. Um, you know, of course you have the ones that are just acquiring on the other side and acquiring left and right. But yeah, a lot of times it's um, from our clients and it's individuals that aren't familiar with the process. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of educational aspects on our Education, end just yep. to kind of lead them through the lead them through the process. Right. Okay. Well, let's get right to it. Um, the first stage of pretty much every acquisition. It's very rare that you don't have some kind of term sheet, letter of intent, so-called pre-definitive agreement kind of period where. You're either sending an offer and kind of outlining the terms of the sale, or actually, or even sending a solicitation of a of of a sale instead of an offer, um, or solicitation of an offer, I should say, uh, and the terms for that sale. Not dissimilar to how um, real estate transactions work, right? You 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 send the offer and see if it accepts. Except the difference is. Typically, in a real estate transaction, when you're buying a home, your realtor um, or your real estate agent will send an offer with pretty much the purchase agreement and all the terms there. And so all the seller has to do is sign and the buyer signs and the the contracts are done. When it comes to any kind of major acquisition, typically you have some kind of writing prior to an enforceable purchase agreement. And that, that document is typically called... A letter of intent. Yeah, no, and that's a good way to differentiate it from the the you know the real estate perspective versus some sort of this business transaction because what you're going to put in the letter of intent, or I shouldn't say you, what everyone does, but what you should do is going to be all you've the parties have agreed upon the material terms 
of the transaction, but it's not going to give you the full, you know, the full definitive documents, terms like that, as opposed to a real estate transaction. But a, a good letter of intent is going to have uh, obviously agreed upon a purchase price and any, like I said, any any sort of the material terms that the parties are going to agree upon. And then of course, there's going to be back and forth on, you know, how how everything should be structured. But you should have a good framework. A good LOI is going to be a good framework for what the transaction is supposed to be. Right. And so I think as a buyer, it makes sense for me to kind of start with this. Um, I would say for the most part, buyers are the ones doing the first draft um, of an LOI. You know, I'm making the offer. Um, I want to tell you what, how I want to purchase your business. And some of the things that I think are important to me as a buyer is for the material terms that I want, um, I want to make sure that we don't move on in definitive agreements, I'm going to put it in there. But there might be certain things that I don't want to be too detailed with because maybe I need to learn more about your business before I kind of really paint myself in a corner and make it harder for me to negotiate later. So one of those things is the purchase price. Uh, as a buyer, um, there's a lot of ways for me to approach that. If I know your business really well and I feel confident uh, that whatever purchase price that I'm willing to agree to now is probably going to stay the same, then I don't mind putting a dollar amount in there. But sometimes it could just be based upon some kind of multiple of earnings, which of course the seller may say, well, my earnings are X and I'm willing to pay 5X or whatever multiple of that of that earnings and I can come up with a purchase price. But if I'm an experienced buyer, I'll, I also know that when it comes to earnings, those need to be looked at closely, possibly adjusted. And so uh, a lot of sophisticated buyers will actually make the purchase price a calculation, you know, or even if I put a dollar amount, it's $5 million based upon a qualifying or a quality of earnings report that is based upon X number of multiples. So some kind of backup um, language that gives me some wiggle room to negotiate if I need to later. Yeah. So on the on the sellers end, my end, um, I, I would like certainty. <laughs> I mean, I, ideally, I would have uh, you know a set dollar amount that I've agreed to because that way I know there's no wiggle room. Um, and and whether that's a combination of a dollar amount and some sort of of earnout or you know something of that nature, but the the more certain I am of whatever I'm going to receive and total consideration at the end of the day is going to be what I'm going to want on the seller's end. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, I don't want to say this is a very controversial thing because remember LOIs are typically non-binding and I think we were going to, maybe we should just jump into that. Like, uh, from a buyer's perspective, uh, I'm willing to be bound by certain terms confidentiality. You know, I don't mind whatever documents you're going to give me in, in, in exchange for this. I, I don't mind being bound to that, but pretty much everything else, like I want my hands free. I, I want, I want to be able to take my time in the transaction, due diligence. I want to be able to renegotiate everything if I can, um, uh, on a go forward basis. Yes. Yeah, on my end, I would like it to be not that way. 
um, as the <laughs> seller. <laughs> Preferably, I would like the entire thing to be binding. Meaning, you know, once you've signed off on the dotted line, you're you're locked in, and we can set some sort of period of time on it. Um, but you're basically locked into the transaction, and you can't back out unless there's some sort of uh, legitimate reason why. Because if we've gone through the process of finding you, having initial discussions, disclosing things. Um, so I want to make sure you're not just kind of shopping this around and trying to find something else. Right. And, and even though that's the desire of the, the seller, I don't think for the most part, um, it's rare that you have any kind of real concrete binding terms at an LOI stage. And th- it's just the nature of there's just too much uncertainty. Uh, you want to get uh, something in writing quickly, but when it comes to drafting documents, when it comes to due diligence, those things take time. I mean, regardless of uh, the the law firm, regardless of the transaction, if it's anything of significance, uh, you can act quickly. But there's still, even even if you act quickly from a time perspective, and we've seen we've done transactions and we've seen transactions that are very complicated that are done in a very short period of time, but the gap of information from day one to whatever the last day is 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 very huge. And so it just doesn't make sense to have a lot of terms that are binding. But there is one term from a buyer's perspective that I think uh, is important to be binding, and that is a no-shop provision, right? I'm putting in an offer. I'm going to spend, look, I depending upon the size of the transaction, I'm going to be spending tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on large transactions before I even decide to sign on the dotted line, so to speak. And if I'm going to do that, you guys can't be shopping around. Um, You guys can't be even talking to other prospective buyers waiting in line for me to, you know, say yes or no. That's, that's not fair. That's not, doesn't make sense for me. And I can respect that from the seller's perspective. Um, You know, the, the, the way to kind of We've, we've countered that before is just make the window short enough where they can't just be kind of taking their time. The buyer can't just be taking their time and not getting things in order. You know, obviously from my end, we have to, from the seller's end, uh, we have to provide a, a lot of documents and we can be responsive and do that. But we want to make sure at the same time, the buyer's not just slowly working through the process. So we can, we can shorten that window Give you some sort of exclusivity period, um, but yeah, once w- once it hits that you know day seventy five or whatever it is, <laughs> then it's a different story. Yeah, and exclusivity periods. I mean, let, let's talk about what's typical. Uh, you know, thirty, sixty, ninety days. Um, that's what's typical on you know mo- most transactions, even complex ones, can be complete within three months um, for most small businesses, uh, but. The, but I would say that uh, agreeing to some kind of finite term is agreeable. Sometimes a, a compromise. If if I'm looking for sixty or ninety days and the seller is not looking to do that, then um, then may, maybe working some kind of extension. Okay, we'll, we'll do thirty days with an option to extend, and um, and it's kind of the same thing. But what it does is that it allows the seller some kind of some kind of check to make sure that there's progress being made. What um, what the seller doesn't want to see, of course, and just to speak on behalf of the seller for a second, is is the buyer not doing anything until the last week of that 30-day period and then um, 
you know, then asking for an extension, right? They want to see some good faith efforts um, in, in, in doing so. In contrast with, you know, the what you find in the in with public companies is not a no-shot provision, but a go-shot provision, which is of course the opposite, which allows public companies to explicitly, even after they've engaged or even entered into a purchase agreement, to shop around for other potential buyers uh, while they're while this while this period of time, maybe they can still terminate the purchase agreement. And of course, that's a very that's the opposite of a buyer favorable term. Uh, not as common, I would say, in um, in, in non public uh, the non public sphere. Right. I, I know you're not a. I know you're not the biggest basketball fan, but that that I'm maybe that go- medium size, <laughs> medium size basketball. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me so. <laughs> If you know, if you don't know, there's restricted and unrestricted free agents. So, right. um, with the unrestricted free or with the um, restricted free agents, basically the another team can make an offer, um, you know, for X number of years, X number of dollars, and then the the team that the player was on has the opportunity to match it. So it kind of, I don't think it's the exact same thing, but it remind that's the the go shop provisions reminds me of something like that. It's almost like hey, see what else you can find, um, but you know, it's if but we we feel pretty confident in this offer, and we think it's going to ultimately be what you're looking for, right. So um, another thing that often comes up at the LOI stage, um, and it's something that we can talk about at every stage of the of the acquisition, but let's just talk about it now. This concept of asset versus equity uh, purchase, right? Um, it's something that we've talked about in the past. By the way, we have a whole series on. It's called Behind the Buy. About um, we actually walk through a client. Of buying a business, right, and every aspect of that, and so uh, we, I, th- I think we even have a, just a whole episode on <laughs> asset versus uh, equity sale as well. But um, so, but in, in essence, buyers tend to want an asset purchase. Okay, as the business, as the as the acquisition and business complexity of the business actually gets bigger, it's actually more likely to be an equity purchase because of the nature of how. You know, these transactions go, but um, but the reason why buyers want, why we want buy, as buyers want uh, an asset purchase usually, is because it is the it is the cleanest way to ensure that any liabilities that exist prior to the closing is not going to follow me as the buyer. It's not to say that the equity purchase isn't going to do that, um, because any kind of even if I structure even if I'm buying a business as equity, I'm going to make sure that liabilities prior to closing are still not mine but um but from a but just from a risk management perspective it is it is the best way to to minimize that previous liability right and you know obviously from the from the sellers from the seller's perspective it's it's the opposite we we would want a, an equity purchase because we're we're not trying to sell off bits and pieces of the business if if you want to buy it, you have to buy everything going back to the house analogy you can't just buy three of the four rooms, you know. You have to buy the all, all four rooms. Like, uh, you know, if, if something comes up, you can have ways to protect yourself. But what we're looking to do is to put everything into one pool and then sell it off, and you know that you 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 can run from it from there after closing. 
<laughs> and, and but see to me this is not a it's hard to say that this is a buyer seller kind of you know it's easy to say buyers want assets and sellers want equity because it, it is a little complicated um everything from taxes to when it comes to uh certain contracts that you want because one of the downsides of an asset purchase is that um or upsides depending upon how you look at it the when we talk about liabilities, we're also talking about certain contract agreements. So like if you have a contract agreement with a client, which is a revenue producing contract, you may not be able to automatically assign that agreement in an asset purchase, whereas in equity, you may be able to. Um, but the opposite is true too. So like if there's a lease, a space lease, which comes with is a expense contract, right? It's a liability. But if I'm buying a business that buying a store, I need to be able to occupy that store. That means I need to be able to have that lease assigned to me as part of the transaction. And so uh, what I would say about this is that it's whether it's an asset purchase or equity purchase, I don't think it's too much of a buyer versus seller issue, but a lot of nuances surrounding that can be solved where both buyer and seller are happy. Uh, and uh, content is probably the, the better word. Because if the buyer is worried about liability, then there's other things in, in an equity purchase, then there's things that you can do to um, limit your liability. And if the if the if if the seller is worried about being able to offload certain liabilities, like for example, what is the seller going to do with a space lease that, um, or let's say an alarm company, what are they going to do in an alarm company uh, a service contract once they sell the business, right? And so that might be something that the buyer agrees to assume. So uh, it's in these details where these things can these things can be resolved um, amicably be, between buyer and seller. Right. But I just realized one, one one thing that's interesting about this it's, it's not really buyer versus seller because we both have an interest to get a deal done. It's much different than our previous topics of employer versus employee and California versus Texas. No, I like to be the seller. I, I disagree with that. Um, <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, well, and, and also to even if it is an equity purchase, the what's going to be required from your end, obviously is going to be disclosure of any liabilities and then, you know, certain contingencies right. in place and indemnification. So there's, there is, uh, the the buyer that's appropriately structured is going to have all those protections in place um, in order to account for anything that's known or unknown. So it's not like it's a you're you're it's like um, you're doing a storage unit purchase where you can't see what's in all of the boxes inside and you pay you know a set amount of dollars. You you do go still through the due diligence process and again protect yourself as adequately as you can. From the buyer's perspective, right, and and that kind of leads into kind of the next phase, right? Is if I'm taking on any kind of liabilities, I need to understand what those liabilities are. If I'm buying a business, I need to know exactly what am I buying. And typically, after an LOI is signed, there's a period of, you know, usually during the uh, exclusivity or no shop period. Um, there's also a due diligence period that overlaps. And this is a period where buyer can look into the business and to see if there's anything that I need to verify whether to move forward or not. And as a buyer, I want everything. 
I want full transparency. I want to be able to ask for anything and receive anything I, I'm looking for um, and and use that information to determine whether I'm going to purchase the business, whether or not I'm going to renegotiate because of whether it's the purchase price because there's I say something that I don't like or whether it's changing the terms of the agreement, whether it's going from an asset to an equity or vice versa because of how I'd like to structure that. And, and I, I frankly, I kind of don't care if I'm being invasive because this is, I'm putting in a lot of money. And so I need to see everything. And, um, that means I want to interview your employees. You know, I want to interview, I want to visit your, if it's a physical location business, I want to go to, you know, I want to go to your warehouse. I want to go to your storefront. I want to see with my own eyes, like how you run your business and, and the ins and outs so that I understand what I'm getting into. Yeah, as a seller, I don't really like that part. Um, I may, <laughs> I may, I may allow you access to a key employee here or there, but I, I don't want you interviewing employees. And I mean, ideally, we would not disclose that there's going to be a sale because there's, I mean, in my opinion, there's only, or sorry, potential sale because there's only. Bad thing, and again, in my opinion, there's only bad things that can happen at that point. Once employees catch wind of, um, you know, that's going to be switched over under new management, essentially. Um, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I would like to run everything through me personally and uh, not have you walking around asking questions and getting people to start talking amongst themselves. Uh, what's going on with this new person that showed up? What what if we did it something like you know that one show where it's like the boss the CEO of the company goes <laughs> to becomes like the cashier of its business for the day or what if uh, we do something like boss. that where yeah undercover boss yeah what if we did something like that where I was able to okay no just joking um no yeah so 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 obviously that's the dynamic right uh, the I, on one hand I want everything. On the one hand, like you don't want to disrupt your business. Okay, I get that. So, what are some compromises? Well, okay, you offered interviews with key employees. You know, especially higher upper management. Uh, disclosing of the p- potential sell is relatively common because they may be they may be required to help produce some of the documents, um, and they maybe they benefit from the sale, or maybe they'll be coming aboard um, in the sale. And also, it, it depends on the timing, right? Um, you, I may be able to make you feel more comfortable in doing employee interviews if it's after definitive agreements or if it's towards the end of a due diligence period, um, that might, that might kind of give you some, uh, comfort and also like, look, if, if I'm going to go to your store, um, I don't mind doing it after hours or if it's during hours, kind of doing it subtly, you know, act as a customer or just kind of. Um, under some of their guys, you know, you, you can take me around as um, in, in some other capacity, and I'll 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 play the role. Um, I used to act, so. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but uh, yeah. So you you mentioned you mentioned the word disrupt, which I think actually goes. Um, it's something that's not thought about because you know obviously, the, so the due diligence process is can and usually is burdensome. I mean, for both sides, but for, for particularly for the seller, because they have to compile everything, get it over to the buyer. 
people often forget they're still they still have to run their business as well. So yeah. it's um, and and that's you know, and and I have an interest in that, right? I don't want yeah. I don't want the employees to um, to necessarily know the sale because I don't want them to have some kind of mass exodus because they think they're all going to get fired because maybe I want to hire them, you know, and maybe, maybe I want to control that transition a little bit. And so that was the other, that was the second point I had was the, the one reason I would be fine with you talking to certain employees would be, again, if they were deemed key employees and in order for the transaction to go through, they had to stay on. Cause oftentimes you'll have, right. Certain employees, you, I mean, typically it's you're going to have your own, you know, if you have one or multiple owners, them or what, again, whatever higher level employees, part of the transaction in order for it to close is they're going to stay on, you know, whether there's time restrictions on that or what have you. Um, but yeah, they, they want to be, the buyer wants to be assured that, you know, these people at least need to be here to tell us what to do because they've been the ones day in and day out. They know the inner workings. They need to be here, and you know, ultimately, what we do with them—that's a different story. But um, they, they still need to come along after the purchase is is done, right? So let's talk about uh, the quality of earnings kind of process. So to generalize a little bit, the buyer is typically more sophisticated than the seller. And that's the nature, right? Usually something bigger is buying something smaller. And um, I mean, of course, that's not always the case, but um, that's often the case. And because of that, uh, you'll have buyers that in order for them to meet their own fiduciary duties to their investors, to meet their standards of practice, uh, they'll want to verify financials in a way that you as a seller just aren't going to be used to, um, where a buyer may be required or get their financials audited every quarter. A seller may not even come close to that, may just have a bookkeeper, not even a CPA kind of looking over the shoulder on these kinds of things. And so our request when it comes to looking at your financials, um, I'll tell you now, most likely you're going to be surprised about how we're going to verify your financials. And it may be in a way that you're not used to, and it may actually be end up being an adverse uh, result to what you think your actual earnings are. Um, something that's going on right now that's very common, and this goes both ways, um, is making adjustments on quality of earnings because of recent events, specifically COVID, right? And healthcare. COVID kind of really messed things up as to how you look at a business in, a, in, in acquisition, because in a lot of healthcare businesses, you've had a huge surge of different things, revenue, et cetera, and a huge surge in expenses. And in order to value a business, making some assumptions of what's going to happen within healthcare in the future, you can't assume whatever happened in the past two years is going to keep happening. But that applies to non-healthcare as well. And so those kinds of adjustments and reviews, whether it's done by the buyer themselves or some kind of third party, uh, is something that I think a lot of sellers uh, are often not used to. And there's this kind of very typical conversation after the quality of earnings report comes out from a relatively sophisticated buyer 
and kind of have that 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 moment with the seller of you know the reality of what they're actually looking at for their business. Yeah, that, and that's going to happen. Um, you know, <laughs> at this point, the on our end, the seller has disclosed certain financial information, but the buyer may have different opinions on things, or once they dig into it, uh, come to completely different conclusions. Um, so that's, that's definitely not uncommon for, for them to see that and the, for there to be some sort of discussions after the fact. Right. And, you know, uh, this does happen, but, um, any kind of due diligence, whether it's a quality of earnings or just general information can be used as negotiating tools. And if I get a quality of earnings report that produces a valuation that is less than what originally expected, I'm going to renegotiate. And when we start drafting definitive agreements, that new purchase price is going to be reflected in there. And you'll even see that post-closing too. There might be some sort of working capital adjustment where the seller side comes up with their figure and then the buyer side will have, you know, let's say 90 days to come up with their figure at the time of closing. Mm-hmm. And there might be differences there too. So it even happens after the fact. Right. And something to kind of bring it relevant to what's going on right now. Um, Elon Musk's tender offer for Twitter, right, has been, I don't know exactly what stage it is right now, but one of the things that he's talking about is so-called due diligence regarding the how many fake users there are on Twitter, right? And outside looking in, it's an obvious uh, kind of, move in order to either one delay or two adjust the purchase price right uh if whatever twitter is representing representing public as to the percentage of twitter users being fake um is lower higher than the reality then that would be uh, a significant difference in valuation and so um this kind of quality of earnings or quality of um whatever you want to call it any kind of due diligence uh swings the needle it, it makes a big difference. Um, it, it can change things dramatically. Uh, something, I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff where, you know, af, af, the, the seller has an idea of what their business is making, you know, but then you get some real professionals and, you know, and, and finances in there. Both buyer and seller at the same time realize how much the business is really worth, you know, and, um, and uh, that that can have some dramatic effect. Well, so, I mean, that's a good thing I had the binding LOI as the seller. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not too right. concerned Wait, about that. Precisely. It, because for the most part, it could only go down. It's it's rare that the yeah. whatever we decided, you know, in the, in the past, because of course, like, who's controlling that due diligence price, process? I'm controlling it as a buyer. I'm the one that um, is going to be pointing out all the bad stuff, right? Uh, and, uh, it's, it's kind of that old adage that as attorneys, we say is when a client, when a, a client first comes to you, and this is very, this is relevant for like, you know, any kind of disputes or criminal matters is when a client first comes to you with a controversy, whatever facts they tell you, those are the best facts that you're ever going to get, because it's only going to go down from, down from there, because from there on, you're going to hear 
You're going to uncover what the other party's perspective is, what other facts that may be that may be bad for your client. And so when you do an assessment and giving feedback to your client, it's like you have to assume that this is the best case scenario, right? It's not going to get better from there. It's very similar to how when as a buyer, when you're when you're buying a business um, and, and sellers have, it's hard sometimes to create that expectation for sellers because sellers... Um, maybe the opposite. It's like, oh, well, they, when they look in their business, when, when they actually look into our business, they're going to be impressed and they they maybe want to pay more, right? Um, or maybe willing to pay more. So, but that's very rarely, rarely the case. Well, unless they have the, uh, the go shop provision, then it could actually right. end up being more. I think that's, that's one of, one of the advantages of having that. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Overall, I mean, it's it's basically the opportunity for the price, the total consideration to decrease. Um, and you know, this, this isn't a, what's that show, Pawn Stars, where someone walks in with a, a coin and <laughs> yeah. they, they think it's, that's oh, probably worth like 500 bucks. <laughs> and they're like, oh, actually, we'll give you way more for it. So that's not, yeah, that's yeah, not a very, exactly. very common scenario. Right. Uh, that's a that's a very funny analogy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that I, I think the only, only times like, Prices may go up if there's some kind of market change or if there's some kind of fundamental change in the business, which does happen. It's like, hey, you know, between the LOI and the purchase agreement, we just picked up this new contract that's worth a billion dollars, right? That's that 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 can change things. So um I, Yeah, I've seen that more on the I've seen that on the real estate side. If you've you know, if you Locked into an agreement and the market like went went crazy like it has the last couple of years. But yeah, I mean you're right. you're you're right. As you know, again, it's it's it has to be something unexpected out of the ordinary, not in the normal course of business that happens um, for those scenarios. Typically, for those scenarios to arise. Right. So, so at some point, attorneys start putting together definitive agreements and. And this is where, like, I, I'm not even sure it's worth kind of getting into the details of this because um, at this point, the the major components should be settled between the parties, and it's kind of subtleties that uh, the parties are are discussing. And at this point, usually attorneys can just handle this on their own. You don't need a, a huge amount of input from um, the principals on this. But some of the things that I think uh, clients tend to not spend as much time as they should on is these concepts of warranties and representations. And when I am buying a business, uh, I want to make sure that the seller, I want them to warranty and represent that everything that they've provided us is completely accurate, hundred percent true. And that there's no surprises that I'm not walking into a trap. So just as an example, there's there's a ton of warranties or representations and they can be very long depending upon the type of business and you know, what's going on. But a basic one, for example, is I want you to warrant that anything that you're doing and everything you have been doing is completely legal because I'm gonna walk in and start operating your business pretty much as is, you know, as I make changes. And I don't wanna be walking in where all of a sudden I'm breaking the law from day one. Right. Another another common warranty and representation is that whatever information you provided to me, all the finances, all the documents and so forth, I want to make sure that's not only all accurate, but it's exhaustive. 
So if I asked for all the agreements, all the contract agreements, my expectation is that you gave me all the agreements. I don't want to buy a business and then find out later that, oh yeah, I have to pay this guy to do my landscaping every week because I have a contract with them, you know, something like that. <laughs> well, I can, I can allow the accuracy one. That's fine. I'm not going to misrepresent things. Um, and I can allow the, as, as burdensome as it is, the exhaustive uh, providing everything you're asking for. I can, I can probably do that as well. But as a seller, the issue I might have is uh, representing that everything that we've done is, you know, 100% legal because th- this and, uh, it comes off bad. But the, <laughs> the, the, the issue is, it's what, what's the phrase? Um, you don't know what you don't know, I think is, is the phrase. It's, right. it's like, well, I, I think I was doing everything correctly, but, you know, what if, what if I was supposed to register as a foreign entity in, in this state? I just didn't know. Or what, what if I was supposed to get this permit and I w- wasn't intentionally doing anything, but I, you know, anything wrong, but I just didn't do it. So there, there's ways to, to try to get around that. It's not just a hundred percent, like you, you're representing everything, you know, there's reasonable, like different reasonableness standards, but it's, that's tough from the seller's perspective. Cause you know, like you Knowledge said, the, standards. yeah, the, the buyer's going to ask for, you know, everything you've done is correct. And it's like, well, again, I, I've done, I think I've done everything by the book, but what if I haven't? I, I don't know. You know, obviously if there's something glaring, yeah. it's a different story, but there's going to be, there's going to be gaps. I mean, that's, that's just part of it. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there, there are certain things that certain represent reps and warranties that I'd be willing to agree to only to the extent that, you know, um, but then there's some things that I don't care if you actually know or not. I want to make sure I'm warranted against that, you know, and um, like accuracy, for example, because, well, even if you don't know you made a mistake, I need to make sure that it's not a mistake, as an example. Uh, and but one of the problems I have as a buyer, again, is that okay, you can make all the warranties and representations in the world, but who's making the reps and warranties? Is it the seller? Um, in the sense that it's the seller entity that's selling the assets, or is it the seller if it's an a- equity purchase? And the reason this is relevant is that okay. If there's a breach, in other words, if there's a breach of that warranty and representation, who am I suing? And who's that? What party am I suing? And what does that party even have any money to pay me? Right? What if I'm buying a business that is full of debt? Let's say they have a million dollars in um, in debt owed, and I'm going to purchase it for 1.2. So I'm going to pay 1.2, but million dollars at closing is going out the window. So the seller doesn't have much money anyway. So what if they, so who am I going to go after? And so some of the ways that I'm going to solve this is one is maybe I'll have personal guarantees or personal liability for reps and warranties. But again, that depends upon that actual individual being worth something or two, I can actually get insurance or require the seller to get insurance against reps and warranties, which can be expensive, but does exist. Um, and or and, and three is also just take the risk, right? Um, that's part of part of buying a business. And so I think that I'm just adding that in there because the reality is that is part of an inherent risk of, of purchasing any business. 
Yeah, and what you're talking about is the requiring the beneficial owners, owner or owners of the company of the actual seller to sign off on those two, which right. you'll see. I mean, because <laughs> I mean it makes sense, and you'll see that it's 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 pretty common. Um, you know, the other way, just contrary to my my side, would be what you'll have is disclosure schedules, and basically within all the representations and warranties. They'll ask for certain information or certain documents, and then as the seller, my obligation then is to disclose that information that's requested or those documents. And and part of right. the represent part of the representations are what I'm providing to you as the buyer is the complete, you know, is completely everything that falls in line with this certain um, section of the representations and warranty. So I mean that's that's going to be very common as well. You'll see that pretty frequently just because the buyer, again, even though they've received everything or likely have received most, if not everything, during the due diligence process, they want to make sure that the seller's disclosing, like, these are the only things within these certain subcategories that are going to apply within these different representations and warranties. That's absolutely correct. And and you, get, you have to deal with these things. Um, like I said, I think clients tend to take these too lightly and it has to do with the transaction itself. It's like these, this, these issues come at the end, right? Where from a buyer seller perspective, they're ready to get it done, ready to close, you know, by the time they sign the LOI, right? Let alone, you know, uh, 90 days later when you're actually closing and, and figuring out final reps and warranties, um, possibly yeah. earlier than that as well. But, um, but speaking of closing, uh, it, most of the time, if you if you do it right and efficiently, closing is a non-event. And we've talked about this in the past, right? Yeah. Um, but there are some issues um, that come up. Uh, you know, there's there's things like closing statements that need to be reviewed and approved, kind of final final checklist of things that um, buyer and seller may be kind of fiddling with things that things that early in the transaction. It, You've already agreed that okay, we're going to deal with this at closing. So, like inventory, for example, like you need to do an accounting of inventory. Um, some some businesses require kind of a a literal time of day that is turned over, right? And so, uh, from buyer to seller, and that may be relevant depending upon on the business. And so, arranging those kinds of things uh, within days before closing is is. You know, there there are some things I think, different perspectives from buyers and sellers that uh, that come up. Right, and obviously every transaction is different, but what you'll what you'll see is <laughs> things just ramp up very quickly at the end. So from especially in documents as well. So from the seller's perspective, what I'd like to what I like to see is any sort of time. You know, basically if if I need to provide this document with you know at least five days prior to closing or whatever it is to have those restrictions removed and basically like, look, whatever you need to be provided, we'll provide it, but it'll be prior to closing. We can't do it five days because then it just pushes the transaction out even further. Right. And, and in, I think for the most part, the buyer is going to be fine with that too, because at this point they, you know, if we're this close, they want to get the deal done. They don't want to push this thing out, you know, a couple of days just because there's some sort of, X number of day requirement that I needed to provide this document, um, just because again, at the end it's it's kind of everything's the the floodgates have opened and there's just a rush to 
put it, finalize everything, put it in place, sign off on everything. But like you said, the, the closing should be an, un, un, if it's a good one, it should be an uneventful uh, event. Right. Well, buyer versus seller, who won this round? I'm pretty sure we both won. I mean, well, I, I we won got a transaction I, done. Well, I won because oh. I got the, I got the consideration. So, oh, that's true. Well, I got yeah. the business. So, mm. wow. <laughs> well, you, you didn't read that's all part- the, you didn't read all the representations and warranties that I had stuck oh, in there. I, I just skipped that over. I didn't. I, didn't <laughs> I, I I did my undercover boss of the day. That's all I needed, you know, to really understand the business. You did um, four four hours here. Four hours of makeup prep to make you look like a completely different person. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where your time was spent. Right, um, but yeah, it's it's again. I just find it interesting. It's it's an interesting dynamic, um, and that this happens any kind of business transaction. Is even though even even as attorneys, I I tend not to like calling the other party's counsel as the opposing counsel, right? Because uh, for the most part in business, they are the other party is not your enemy or the opposite. Uh, in fact, uh, it is the style of cooperative negotiation that has been proven to be very effective um, in, in business and figuring out solutions, not necessarily compromising. It's not about just meeting in the middle, but um, understanding the other party's perspective. And hopefully that's what this bring, is bringing out that um, buyers and sellers have different interests. There's no doubt. But there are ways to get to the same point and get both parties happy um, and content, I should say, as I said before, um, to get a transaction done. And ultimately, uh, that's the goal for, for the most part. There's, there's almost always a transaction there that's good for both parties. Um, very rare is it one-sided. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good way to put it. I, I never, I always refer to it as buyer's counsel or seller's counsel when when I right. talk with, with our clients about it because, like, you, I mean, again, you don't but, say enemy counsel, no. <laughs> well, I, I mean, but yeah, it's like you were saying, it's it's um, the from the attorney perspective, the goal is to finalize the deal, and obviously, there's going to be back and forth and. There's going to be dis, there's likely going to be dis, you know each side disagreeing on terms or how something should be worded or included excluded etc. But at the end of the day, both parties are working towards the same goal, the finish line of closing the transaction. So you, you actually, I mean, it's it's not like your typical you know two attorneys on different sides of the table. There is some sort yeah. of collaborative effort um, because again, everyone's trying to get to the same point. And we might, you know, there might be different path. Might disagree on what path you're going to take there, but still trying to get to that finish line of closing out the transaction. You'll, you'll often even see, um, you know, like a, a closing. I was going to say like celebration or you know dinner or something like that too. When yeah. every all parties will be there, including attorneys, and everyone's you know shaking at, hands. At the least, there's the traditional uh, congratulations email. Yeah, it's true. True. That, Very true. Because there's like 50, 50 people involved and, and at least there's that, especially when you know no one's seeing each other in person or it's, in the same city. It's um, I, I well you you're different because you said you were an actor, but I'm not an actor. I've never I've never been in a movie, but I imagine it's similar to that where you're just working so intimately with these people for a set period of time and then it's just done. Yeah. 
And then you just like, oh, right. well, you know, and then you just don't talk to him again, maybe ever. You know, it's it is true. Like you just you you don't interact with them often again, and um, you can't. Even, it, yeah. it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a pretty decent analogy because you, especially council to council, you do spend a lot of time um, dealing with each other, good and bad, and um, and and hopefully you run into each other again. Hopefully on a good transaction. You know there. I should say there, of course, there are, we didn't really talk about bad deals and walking away. Um, bad deals, there there are bad deals and um, your job as a buyer or seller or your counsel's job is to make sure you walk away from a bad deal. But um, but it's, it's, again, it's very rare that there's just not something that both parties can, should be able to accept, but, um, but deals fall apart all the time. That's not, not every deal has to happen. Yeah, and I would say I, I, I was going to mention this earlier and forgot, but yeah, that that due diligence process—that's to me—that's the make or break, yeah, period of time. And, and it's typically you might feel differently, but it's it's typically the buyer that's going to be the one walking away. Hence, why they want the yeah. you know the you know certain terms in there, but the non the non binding terms of the LOI because you, it's going to be a case where the seller might have uh, you know kind of oversold something or. Maybe didn't fully disclose everything, or maybe they didn't even know. I don't know. And then the buyer's like, "Well, now that I'm digging into it, I know we've mentioned before. It's either to walk away or let's renegotiate the terms, particularly whatever yeah. the the purchase price so, is." Gonna sometimes be. you may have seller remorse. Um, sure, sure. But that's but you're right. It's not not as common. That's why yeah. seller's remorse is not a term. <laughs> it's a, that anyone's really heard of. Definitely. Well, all right. That's our episode. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are so thankful for you listening. Um, don't forget to follow us on social media as well as view our podcast if you're listening on YouTube. And if you're on YouTube, you can listen to the podcast as well. Um, I don't know why you're not listening to the podcast and just viewing us on mute. That would be weird. Um, but if you are, unmute that and or you can also just listen to the audio. Or you can do it concurrently. You could pull up the YouTube, mute it, and then listen to the podcast on the right. just the audio. So that's another option. That's actually that's what I do. Okay. Interesting enough. <laughs> like the person that watches well, uh, watches a basketball game from their local team and then mutes mutes the TV and <laughs> listens to the local broadcaster do the actual call or or. Or at the game, right? I've, I've seen people uh, oh, like pull yeah. up the phone. They go to the game and they pull up some kind of live feed or whatever. That is, yeah, you don't, um, you don't see that as often, but yeah, you're, you are right about that. I always thought that was odd for the people that did that. Sorry if, if that's one of you. I, I'm sorry, but that's, uh, I just thought that was. I'm, I don't apologize at all. Okay. I, I think those people are crazy. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's close it out. Keep, keep it sound, keep it smart. You just listened to Legally Sound Smart Business with Asar Pasha and Matt Staub. For more information about the podcast, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This podcast is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or engaging with the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice but rather is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only. Do not rely on the information on this podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney.
The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and does not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. This podcast may contain portrayals of clients by non-clients, reenactment of scenes and persons which are not actual or authentic, and depictions which are a dramatization.